0: You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Doris Kearns Goodwin. This program originally aired in 2019. Thank you. I guess I went. (laughs) All right. I am so glad to be back here on the maiden voyage of my new book, Leadership in Turbulent Times. Over the years, I've been lucky enough to be here a number of times talking about one or another of my presidential biographies, so I know what a great, book-loving audience you are. It's just hard to believe that it's now five decades that I've lived with presidents who are no longer alive, waking up with them in the morning, thinking about them when I go to bed at night. It may seem an odd profession to spend one days and nights with dead presidents, but I wouldn't change it for anything in the world. My only fear is that in the afterlife, there's going to be a panel of all the presidents that I've ever studied, and every single one will tell me every single thing I missed about them, and the first person to scream out will be Lyndon Johnson. How come that damn book on the Kennedys was twice as long as the book you wrote about me? Well, what happened is when I moved from one of my presidents over these years to the next, I always felt a little guilty. I'd have to move all of his books out of the room, from FDRs out, bring in Lincoln. I felt I was betraying an old boyfriend. So five years ago, I decided instead of finding a whole new president, I would keep my guys together and look at them in a new way through the lens of leadership, the subject I've been lecturing on for decades, the subject I've been interested in since my days in graduate school. When we would stay up at night asking these big questions, are leaders born or main? Where does ambition come from? Does the man make the times, or does the times make the man? So I chose the four leaders I knew best, Lincoln, Teddy, Franklin Roosevelt, and LBJ on civil rights, all of whom led through times of turbulence, thus the title. I had no idea five years ago it would be so relevant today. (laughs) Indeed, I fear it becomes more relevant with every passing day. Though not a single word is said about the current political situation, I believe the stories of these leaders who set forth a template of shared purpose, collaboration, compromise, and civility, underscores the absence of unifying leadership in our country today. I fear if we ignore history, it'll be at our peril, for without heartening examples of leadership from the past, we fall prey to accepting our current uncivil, polarized climate as our norm. By heartening examples, I don't assume a willful optimism. The stories here provide evidence and proof that real norms have guided us through the greatest trials of our history. People often ask me, yes, (laughs) people often ask me as if I know as an historian, are these the worst of times? And my answer is a resounding no. Imagine what it was like when Abraham Lincoln took office. The country had split in two. A civil war that would leave 600,000 soldiers dead was about to begin. He later said if he had known, What he would face during his first months in office, he would not have thought he could have lived through it. Imagine what it was like for Theodore Roosevelt, thrust into office after McKinley's assassination, at a time when there was widespread talk of a coming revolution between the workers and management. The Industrial Revolution had shaken up the economy, much as the technological revolution and globalization have done today. Big companies were swallowing up small companies. Um, There were cities replacing towns, immigrants were pouring in from abroad, a threatening gap had developed between the rich and the poor, a mood of rebellion had spread among the laboring classes. Or consider FDR, who feared the whole house of cards might collapse before he could even take office. The economy had hit rock bottom with thousands of banks collapsing, wiping out the savings of millions of Americans. One out of every four people had lost their jobs and most others were working at reduced wages and hours, hungry people were rioting in the streets. The future of capitalism was at risk. Or consider LBJ taking office when the country was in mourning for JFK, when everything was in chaos. One shocking event cascaded into another as the country watched in real time the death of JFK and then the murder of Lee Harvey Oswald. The air was rife with speculation that both murders were part of a larger conspiracy relating to Russia, Cuba, or the mafia. So each situation cried out for leadership, and each of these four men was peculiarly fitted for the time. They set forth a template of shared purpose, collaboration, compromise, as I say, civility. They sought to heal divisions, to bring various parts of the country together, to summon the citizenry to a sense of common purpose. Rather than bring people together, the failure of leadership on both sides today foments and exacerbates divisions. I fear that stoking one's base is not leadership. It is governance by faction. The volume and speed of daily agitation leaves us diminished and bereft of moral purpose. What disagrees is fake news. Facts are discredited. Slogans and repetition replace argument. It's as if we've left a world where ability, experience, and temperament no longer matter. Without a shared political truth, a country has no direction. The trust in the institutions of democracy we depend upon, the President, the Congress, the courts, the free press, is undermined. That is why I believe the stories of these earlier leaders must not remain remnants of yesteryear. And it's wonderful to relax and replenish with the past. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I believe the stories that these leaders were here before, who engaged us deeply, they tapped our idealism, and our citizens chose them. We can have them again. We've lived in times when citizens work together to enlarge the opportunities and lives of others, through the anti-slavery movement, the progressive movement, the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement. Every time social justice is advanced, it's when citizens often take the lead and the leaders channel their ambitions. Such renewed activism is the key to moving forward today. With public sentiment, Lincoln said, nothing can fail. Without it, nothing can succeed. So as we begin tonight, let us find solace and hope in the knowledge that we've come through far more difficult struggles in the past. The history of our great country, can be our lodestar in these troubled times, providing perspective, reassurance, and most importantly, the stimulus to take up our responsibility as citizens, to band together to heal our divisions, to understand who we are as a people and where we are going. Thank you. I can't wait to talk with you. Thank you.
1: Well, hi there.
0: Hello you. How are you? I've already met her backstage we and I'm so glad friends. she's going to be the person. I've stolen
1: her. <laughs> so, it is an honor truly, especially on such a historic week to sit with you and and I think it's a vote of confidence, you know, for a presidential historian and a political reporter that all these people are spending their Friday night with a bunch of dead presidents. So, with that, let us begin with your guys. Your guys as you call them, we have Abraham Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, LBJ, and there are so many ways that you could dig into this theme of leadership, right? I mean, a million and a half ways, but you chose to spend time on their youth, times when they faced adversity, existential crises on occasion, and then kind of a case study of sorts uh, of their time in office. So why did you break it up that way?
0: Well, what happened is in these last years when I've been lecturing on presidents in the White House, I was at a college and a kid raised his hand and he said, How can I ever aspire to become one of those people? They're already on Mount Rushmore. They're on the currency. They've got movies about them. It's too far removed from me. So I figured I'd start the book with when each one of the four guys, and I don't mean disrespect by calling them guys. It's just because I've lived with them so long, I feel like they're my guys.
1: I hear they take up a lot of space in your
0: house. (laughs) They do take up a lot of space (laughs) in my house. When each one of them decided to run for public office the first time. So we could see them when they struggled. We could see them when they were confused, when they would make mistakes out of overconfidence and not knowing what they were doing. So Lincoln, for example, starts, the first time he runs for public office, he's only 23 years old, and he's living in this little town of New Salem. He's only been there for six months. Not many people know him. And in those days, you had to put out a handbill to tell people you were running for office and what you stood for. And his is just amazing. It starts out, Every man has his peculiar ambition. Mine is to be esteemed of by my fellow man and to be worthy of their esteem. And then he talks about the fact that he has no popular relations to help him, that he probably may not win, but he won't be too chagrined because he's been used to disappointment for so long. But then then the great thing he says, but I want you to know, um, if I don't win, I'm gonna try and try again. In fact, I think I'll try five or six times until it's too humiliating, and then I promise I'll never try again.
1: Why, is, <laughs> how is he so self-aware at that age in that moment? I,
0: how Lincoln is anything is still a mystery. It's just extraordinary. And then, of course, just to go into what he goes through, so he does finally win in the state legislature the second time, and he had made a promise to his constituents in that very first um, handbill that he would bring infrastructure projects to Illinois because poor farmers couldn't get their goods to market, so they needed rivers and harbors dredged and roads built. And he sponsored a million dollar program to do it. He was so proud, and then the state went into a recession, and they um, couldn't finish the projects, then they couldn't pay the debt, and the state catapulted down, and Lincoln shouldered the blame. And at the same time that that happened, he broke his engagement to Mary Todd, which meant he broke his word. He he wasn't sure he wanted to marry her, but he felt that um, he had humiliated her. So those breaking the word to his constituents and to Mary made him feel that he had lost the chief gem of his character, which was his word. And he fell into a very serious depression, enough so that all of his friends took knives and razors and scissors from his room. And his best friend said, Lincoln, you must rally, or you will die. And he said, I know that. And I'd just as soon die right now, but I haven't yet accomplished anything to make any human being remember that I have lived. So fueled by that worthy ambition, he returns to the state legislature. He wins a single term in Congress. He runs for the Senate. He loses. He runs again. He loses again. And then he's a dark horse candidate for the presidency. And the rest is history. But resilience carried him through, one of the key traits of a leadership.
1: It was really astonishing to read how how dark that time was for him, because we remember him for so much you know more than that, and and so you do really learn about a person in, in that dark time.
0: No, I think it's it's really true when people come through difficult times. I do think they can emerge stronger than before. Ernest Hemingway once said, "Everyone is broken by life, but some people are stronger in the broken places," and that was surely true of him. And that perseverance and resilience that he kept going it. it gave him in good stead when he had to face all the losses in the early days of the Civil War and keep going until it finally turned around.
1: Well, let's compare that to the youth of Teddy Roosevelt, which was a bit different, wouldn't you say?
0: (laughs) I would say that there's no trajectory to how people reach the pinnacle of power. I mean, both Teddy and Franklin are born to extraordinary privilege and wealth, while Lincoln suffers unremitting poverty and LBJ hard times. So Teddy decides at 23, that he's going to run for the state legislature too, but he doesn't have to put out a handbill saying why he wants to do it. The political boss has come to him and said, Why don't you run for the state legislature? He's in the Silk Stocking District of New York. And he, he knows that Teddy's father had been a good philanthropist. His name was well known. He knew that they had the money to help support the campaign. And so Teddy decides, and it's interesting, unlike Lincoln at the first, he just decides, I think I'll do this as an adventure. Not that he admitted, not that I thought I was going to help other people's lives, but because I think it might be fun to do. But once he gets into the state legislature, the experience of being in politics, and he had a long, winding career, brings him into contact with other people that he normally would not have, given his privileged background. So he sees the dilapidated tenements. Um, when he's police commissioner, he's walking the slums in the streets at night. When he's a soldier in the army, he's sheltering and sharing food with ordinary people. And then he becomes governor and he sees the corruptions in, this, in, the, in the political bosses and the, and the c- cities. And then he finally becomes president when McKinley's assassinated. But the political career, he said, was so extraordinary because it exposed him to all these other things. And it developed in him an empathy that he hadn't had before. Another critical leadership trait is empathy. And he said he um, began to understand other people. And he worried, actually, and this is so relevant today. He worried that where democracy would founder would be on the rock if other people began to think of other people in in classes, sections, and races as the other, instead of as a common American citizen. And that's so relevant today. Um, and and the, sad thing is, the sad thing is that he believed that widespread political experience was the best. That was the best thing about politics. It puts you into those situations. And when you think about the 2016 campaign, political experience was a liability. We wanted somebody without it because the system seemed broken, and then you get the results. That was subtle. (laughs) Sorry. That's
1: it's your night. (laughs) Uh, What about FDR's youth? I mean, was it hard for him to find that empathetic place? Well, what's so
0: interesting about FDR Mm -hmm. is that he grew up in a really insulated world, even more than Teddy Roosevelt's. And he wasn't a particularly good student at Groton. He was kind of a gentleman C at Harvard, and he went to Columbia Law School, and then he finally became a clerk in a in a Wall Street law firm, a conservative Wall Street law firm. And, and then he's 28 years old, and somebody comes to him and says, how about if we give you a safe seat in the Dutchess County Democratic Party platform and run for that seat? And immediately he accepts. And, and, he, and he said, I'd love to do it. And he gets out on the campaign trail, and all of a sudden, he's barnstorming. It's exactly what he was meant to do. Um, He was so at ease with people. He was able to listen to them, to ask them about their lives, and he treated them with no condescension. He loved every minute of it. Eleanor, who was there at the time, said that he wasn't a great speaker at first, that he would have so many gaps between what he was saying that she was afraid he would never go on, until finally, by the end of the campaign, he was going on so long, she had to go and drag him off the stage. Um, So then he found, William James, the philosopher, said there's a moment in characters' lives where they find that voice within that says, this is the real me. So he found that. So he became a politician. He became Assistant Secretary of the Navy, ran for Vice President in 1920, and was a pretty interesting guy, but without some of the depth that I think the polio experience created in him. Um, he, um, he, he had to spend years just trying to learn to walk again. And he said it, it taught him humility, which he had not had before, the sharing of his vulnerability and his limitations. And when he created the Warm Springs Rehabilitation Center, what he was able to do for the other patients was not just in the warm waters of the giant pool, help them to physically get better, but he taught them joy in life again and and purpose in life again. He would have water polo, tag, they would have wheelchair dances, they'd have cocktail hours, they'd have theatricals, they'd have speeches at night. And they began to say, as they all said, that they could live again a life. And then once the Depression came and he becomes president, He can identify with people to whom fate has also dealt an unpinned hand, and the empathy was such a huge part of his presidential success.
1: There's so much in there that we need to come back to, but let's not leave LBJ first. In his youth, how did he find his voice?
0: Well, LBJ loved politics from the time he was like three years old. <laughs> um, his father was in the state legislature and he loved nothing more than sitting in the, in the background while his father and the cronies are talking on the porch. And he loved campaigning with his father on the trail. But he first appears on the public scene when he's at a picnic. And they used to have people speak. The governor was running for for office. He was supposed to come up and speak on his own behalf, but he wasn't there. So LBJ pops up and said, I'll speak for him. And he stands on a truck, and he gives this stem-winding, wonderful, natural speech. And all of a sudden, people look at him and say, hey, he's Sam Johnson's son. But he's always an outlier in a lot of these stories, so he goes to college and he decides that he wants to become the power in the con- in the college so how he does it is amazing he decides that the the way you get power is to get close to the people who have power so he figures I got to get close to the president of the college. So he's on a janitorial crew outside. Every kid had to work. And he decides to clean up more trash in, more, in less minutes than anybody else so he'll get noticed. He does. He gets put on the inside janitorial crew. And then um, he, he asks to mop floors outside the president's office. The next thing you know, he's a clerk in the president's office. The next thing you know, he's running the president's <laughs> office. <laughs> and then he steps up and gets into politics from there. But the most important experience he had there And again, this is where empathy is developed. He took a year off between college, and pretty much he was just climbing power. But he went to this place called Catula, a Mexican-American school, and he saw, as he said, the pain of prejudice on those kids' faces. So he used his salary to get them games and sporting equipment, to make them feel that they had a chance in life. He wanted to fire ambition in them. And they all said he was the most remarkable influence on their life. So once he had had that experience, even though he just climbed power for a long period of time, I think he really wanted to return to that. He had a massive heart attack in 1955. And he had just been a power man. And then he asked himself what he's already majority leader, the most powerful one in the country. He said, what if I died now? Would anybody remember that I have lived? What would I be remembered for? Similarly to Lincoln. So then he got a civil rights bill through the Senate. And then, of course, when he becomes president, that becomes the main thing that he will be remembered for.
1: You do spend a lot of time talking about the importance of empathy and, you know, you got into a little bit of where we could see it now. How would you encourage leaders now to, to seek it out and to find it within themselves?
0: I think it's so important for these leaders to get out of Washington and really be able to talk, not just to your base and the people that love you, but to get around the country and see the way other people live. I mean, it is the problem, you know, as, as I can see that you understand, too, that People in different parts of the country now are feeling unpleasant, and not, and not even wanting to know the people who are living in other parts of the country. The rural areas feeling different from the city areas. Um, my son, who went to Harvard College and in '01, and then after September 11th, he joined the army. And he said that experience was the most extraordinary experience, because here he was with a platoon. He earned a Bronze Star. He was in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the platoon was made up of kids from all over the country. And they had a common mission. I sometimes think that the reason we had more bipartisanship in the 50s, 60s, 70s, even to the 80s, was a lot of the congressmen and senators had been in World War II or the Korean War. And so they knew what it was like to go across all these lines and care about purpose. They cared about the purpose of the institutions I, I, that's what worries me so much today, is where is the purpose of the U.S. Senate right now? They should be wanting that even more than their partisanship. Partisanship on both sides has become so so extreme. And so I sometimes think my son is very much in favor of a national service program, the idea that more people could come out of college, out of high school and go and help other people in other areas, and they'd get to know each other across lines. Teddy Roosevelt, for example, when he was president, Took a train trip around the country every spring and fall for six weeks each spring and fall. The whistle stop train would go through all parts of the country. He'd get out of the out of the train. He'd talk to the people in the village station. Then he'd stay in the train. Um, for hours just waving to people who would be standing at the little road crossings along the way. There's a funny story when he was waving frantically at a group and he was rather hurt that they didn't respond to his waves until he was told because he was near sighted he was waving at a herd of cows. Little wonder <laughs> that they didn't respond. <laughs> they, they wouldn't wave back. They did not wave back <laughs> with
1: their hoofs. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up this partisan moment that we're in because I think that's one of the biggest questions I as a political reporter have had for you which is how partisan are things now compared to where things were decades before I mean we had I saw a headline in the Washington Post today that the uh, the only consensus is that the Senate and the nation have hit a new low And even, actually, Brett Kavanaugh in his testimony had said that he fears for the future. I mean, where are we now with how split and divided we are with where we've been before?
0: Yeah, I mean, you could look at the 1850s. And as I say, it was a more difficult time for a lot of reasons. I mean, the South and the North had split apart culturally in the hearts of themselves even before the Civil War came. And there's an incident that just reminded me of what's been happening lately where you have one group of people feeling this is what's happening, another group of being seeing it entirely differently. Um, there was a, a moment when a, a congressman from South Carolina, Preston Brooks, came into the Senate floor and hit Senator from Massachusetts, Sumner, over the head with his cane, hurting him so badly that he was out of the Senate for months and months and months and months. But the important thing was that in the South, Preston Books was lionized. He was made a hero. He was presented a golden cane, and all of a sudden, people are carrying canes around, hoping that there's somebody else they can cane. And in the North, it became such a mobilizing moment that the anti-slavery movement increased, And they actually began to form the Republican Party. And the Republican Party was meant to be people from the Democratic Party who were anti-slavery with people from the old Whig Party that were anti-slavery. And they had a cause. And then that cause, obviously as sad as it was, ended slavery finally forever. So somewhere along the line, We may need some new kind of political party. We may need people joining together in different ways. We may need somehow people to understand a fiery notion that you need people on both sides to be working together as common citizens. I mean, again, that's what Teddy Roosevelt said. You have to feel your sense of common duties as common citizens, and we have to hope. It just doesn't mean a war to make us do that. We're at a position right now, and I think most people realize that something has to change. Because it's not healthy. It's not healthy to be obsessed with the news every day and the breaking news of some yes yet another thing that's happening. And no nobody's taking hold of it. But I still believe citizens will. It, it's up to us and, and we can do it. I'd clap for that.
1: <laughs> so this kind of begs the question, you know, with the people that we have in Congress and in the White House, you know, it, it opens up this big leadership debate of, you know, are these traits do they come with you when you're born? You know, do you develop them over time? A big section of your book talks about the adversity they all face. So did you come down one way or the other, or is it a mix of the two?
0: No, I, I think it is a mix of the two. I think there are certain leadership traits that people can be born with. I mean Lincoln was born with this unusual empathy even as a child. There's a moment when his friends are putting hot coals on turtles to watch them wriggle. And he goes to the friends and he says, This is wrong, even which is a hard thing to do when you're when you're a kid. And he obviously was born with a gift for language. Teddy Roosevelt was born with a photographic memory and an incredible curiosity about things. Franklin Roosevelt had that natural optimistic temperament, which put him in great stead with everything he did. And LBJ just had this unbounded energy. But for the most part, one of the things Teddy Roosevelt said, he said, there's two kinds of success in the world. One is where somebody has an incredible talent that no matter how hard you try, you couldn't develop that talent, like a great poet. Or he would say a Lincoln at Gettysburg. But most success, he said, is when people develop the talents that they have to an extraordinary degree by the application of hard, sustained work. And I think that's true for all of all of these people. They they had drive. They worked. I mean, it's such a simple thing to say, but when you want to tell your kids, no matter what talent you have or what you want to develop, it's always work. It's looking at yourself with self-reflection. I mean, what one of the things they all shared in common was being able to see whether they were making mistakes, to acknowledge the mistakes. And from failure, you learn success. When Teddy Roosevelt was first in the state legislature, he realized he'd developed a swelled head. He was, had this blistering language. He could, he could mock anybody. He, he could be today in some ways. He'd be a good candidate today. He could tweet, because he had all these little phrases, speak softly and carry a big stick. You know, um, Don't hit until you have to, and then hit hard. You know, he even gave Maxwell House the slogan, good to the very last drop. But while he was in the state legislature, he took after his opponents with venom. He said, I fired it on my desk. I was blistering in my And he made headlines all around the state. He couldn't get anything done in the state legislature. So he finally learned that you had to um, collaborate, and you had to tamp down your rhetoric and be able to work with the other side. So acknowledging errors and learning from their mistakes is one of it. The self-reflection, to look at themselves from the outside in and figure out what was going on. One, one of my favorite things, that, except for, except for LBJ that they all shared, was everybody has a certain amount of energy. And especially when you're in a high-pressure job, you have to figure out ways to find time to think and to find times to replenish that energy. And um, in the, in, especially in this world now, we think we don't have time for any of these things. But these guys had pretty difficult days, <laughs> and they all somehow found the time to think and replenish their energy. Lincoln actually went to the theater a hundred times during the Civil War. He said when the lights came down and a Shakespeare play came on for a few precious hours, he could forget the war that was raging. And then his sense of humor was his way of dealing with the sadness of the war. Whenever there was a terrible cabinet meeting that was going on and everybody was anxious, he would tell a funny story. Um, My favorite story that he always told, which they put in the movie, I was so glad Daniel Day-Lewis told it so well had to do with the Revolutionary War hero, Ethan Allen, who was over in Britain after the war. It came to an end, the revolution. And they were they didn't want him to be happy over there, so they decided to put a huge picture of General George Washington in the outhouse where he'd have to encounter it. And they figured he'd be so irritated at the thought that George Washington was in the outhouse. But he came out of the outhouse not upset at all. And they said, well, didn't you see George Washington there? Oh, yes, he said. I think it was the perfectly appropriate place for him. What do you mean, they said. Well, he said, there's nothing to make an Englishman shit faster than the sight of General George Washington. (laughs) So you're in the middle of a cabinet meeting, and people are upset. You're going to relax. And then the best one was FDR. Every night during World War II, he would have a cocktail hour where the rule was you couldn't talk about the war. You could talk about books. Especially you could talk about gossip, movies you'd seen, so that he could forget the war that was raging. And after a while, the cocktail hour mattered so much to him because he wanted these people who lived with him to be in the cocktail hour. He had all the people around him living on the second floor of the White House where the cocktail hour would take place. So his foreign policy advisor, Harry Hopkins, came for dinner one night, slept over, never left till the war came to an end. <laughs> Princess Martha <laughs> from Norway was there. She lived with the family. His secretary, Missy Lahan, lived with the family. Lorena Hickok, who had a relationship with Eleanor, lived next to Eleanor. And the great Winston Churchill came and spent weeks at a time in a bedroom diagonally across from Roosevelt. So when I was writing the book, I was so obsessed with the thought of all these people in their bathrobes <laughs> at night and they're all in the second floor corridor and what great stories they must have told. And wishing when I'd been up there with LBJ, I'd thought of asking, so where was Churchill? Where where was Where where was Eleanor? Where was Franklin? But I wasn't thinking in those terms then. So I mentioned this on a radio program in Washington. And it happened Hillary Clinton was then listening. She was at the White House. So she called me up at the radio station. And she invited me to sleep overnight in the White House. She said we could then wander the corridor and and, and figure out where everyone had slept 50 years earlier. (laughs) So two weeks later, she followed up with an invitation to a state dinner, after which, between midnight and 2 AM, the president, Mrs. Clinton, my husband, and I went through every room up there. And we figured out, yes, Chelsea Clinton is sleeping where Harry Hopkins was. (laughs) The Clintons are sleeping where FDR was, and we were sleeping that night in Winston Churchill's bedroom. There was no way I could sleep. (laughs) I feel
1: like you have to patent like the White House sleepover board game. Exactly, don't you think?
0: (laughs) Only you could do it. No, in fact, the funniest story that I love in World War Two took place in our bedroom, which is that after. Churchill came after Pearl Harbor, and he and Roosevelt were set to sign a document that put the Associated Nations against the Axis powers, but no one really liked the word Associated Nations. So early that morning, Roosevelt awakened with the whole new idea of calling them the United Nations. He was so excited, he had himself wheeled into Churchill's bedroom, our bedroom, to tell him the news. But it so happened Churchill was just coming out of the bathtub and had nothing on. So Roosevelt (laughs) said- I'm sorry, I'll come back in a few moments, but Churchill, ever able to speak in a very formal voice, said, oh, no, please stay. The prime minister of Great Britain has nothing to hide from the president of the United States. <laughs> so I couldn't wait to go in the bathtub the next morning. I was in the presence of the greatness of the past. Yeah, you were.
1: <laughs> but you said that LBJ, not a man to relax. He didn't do any of this relaxing that you say is so important
0: for no, leaders. he could never unwind. I mean, what would happen to him is that he... Um, would go to movies, but he didn't like being in the dark where he couldn't talk. When he'd go to baseball games, he just wanted to talk politics in between the innings. But the funniest part was when I was with him, helping him on his memoirs, and in the presidency, actually, during during the ranch years, one day we were swimming in this pool, which really wasn't a very easy pool to swim in because he wanted to work at every moment, so it was filled with floating rafts, with floating memo pads, and floating telephones, (laughs) so you could hardly move. Anyway, that day, um, a, a reporter had written about a speech he'd given to the troops going to Vietnam. So it was still when he's in the presidency. And he said that it was a very stirring speech, because he talked about his great-great-grandfather dying at the Battle of the Alamo. He said the only problem was he didn't have a great-great-grandfather who died at the Alamo. He just must have wished he did so much he made him up. So I turned to him amidst all these floating rafts. And I said, how can you do that? And he said to me, oh, these journalists are such sticklers for details. <laughs> That's true.
1: I can I can fact check that. (laughs) So, I I would like to talk about LBJ with you a little bit because to me that uh, was a it felt more most personal that section. Obviously, someone that you knew very well, and I of course people know this story, but not everyone does. So, can you please regale us in in how you two came together and how you almost didn't? Correct.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, what happened is. I was a graduate student at Harvard and selected for the White House Fellows Program. It's a fabulous program. Colin Powell was a White House Fellow, Wesley Clark. We had a big dance to celebrate that night. He did dance with me, not that peculiar. There were only three women out of the 16 White House Fellows. But as he twirled me around the floor, he whispered that he wanted me to be assigned directly to him in the White House. But it wasn't to be that simple, for in the months leading up to my selection, while I was a graduate student, like so many young people, I was active in the anti-Vietnam War movement. And a friend of mine and I had sent an article into the New Republic against LBJ, but we hadn't heard anything until two days after the dance. It appeared in the New Republic with the title, How to Remove Lyndon Johnson from Power. (laughs) So I was certain he would kick me out of the program. But instead, surprisingly, he said, bring her down here for a year. And if I can't win her over, no one can. So though I never really changed my mind about the war, I felt much more understanding and empathy of him there was such sadness in him in those last, those last years of his life. He had done so much in the first 18 months of his presidency. I realized it even more when the 50-year anniversaries of all these great things took place. You know, Civil Rights Act ending segregation in the South, um, the Voting Rights Act, Fair Housing, Medicare, Medicaid, NPR, PBS, Head Start, immigration reform. It's extraordinary what he did. Yeah, he deserves, he deserves to be remembered for that. And, um, And I saw the sadness because the glory days were gone, because the war had already cut his legacy in two. And I think that's why he opened up to me in ways he never would have had I known him at the height of his power. And I'd like to believe it's certainly what fostered my career as a presidential historian. I would have been an historian, but not necessarily the presidencies. But much more importantly, I'd like to believe that it fired within me the drive as I went from each president to the next to understand them, not to judge them from the outside in, but to empathize with them, which I'd like to believe I've done.
1: Well, and in your LBJ case study, you do take time to give a very pointed reflection on Vietnam and his failures there. I mean, is that difficult for you to, to work through that in a different way than it is when you write about your other guys?
0: I suppose probably so, just because knowing him. But on the other hand, as a, as a presidential historian, you know that all of your people are going to disappoint you. And in his case, it's not just a failure. I mean, there's 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 big failures for all of them. I mean... Teddy Roosevelt running against Taft in 1912 hurt the very progressive cause that he, he, he believed in. And he did it in part because he just couldn't bear being out of power. I mean, his daughter Alice said that he so wanted to be in the center of attention that he wanted to be the baby at the baptism and the bride at the wedding and the corpse at the funeral. <laughs> so, um, and obviously, FDR, is incarceration of the Japanese-Americans, is one of the greatest violations in civil liberties. And not bringing more Jewish refugees into the country before Hitler closed the door forever will be a scar on his legacy. But with LBJ, it's, it's a deeper thing, because the war was, was the twin for the great society. Um, but so I had to add a coda to understand the failure of leadership that was the opposite of the leadership he showed in domestic affairs. But in domestic affairs, he was amazing. And he, he really had courage. And I don't think I'd fully absorbed it until working on this book in terms of what are the qualities of leadership. When he comes in after JFK is assassinated, that very first night, he has a vision of what he wants to do. They're sitting there watching um, the, uh, the screen with all the JFK stuff going on, and he's sitting with two other guys in his big bed at the vice president's house. And he starts saying, you know, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a tax cut through first, and then it's going to help with the economy, and then I'm going to get civil rights through, and then I'm going to get voting rights through, and then I think I'll get aid to education so everybody can have all the education they can take, and then I'm going to get old Harry Truman's Medicare passed. And he got every single one of those bills passed in the next 18 months. But most importantly was civil rights, because when he first came in, he decided he would make civil rights his first priority. And he gives a joint session of Congress speech four days later to say that. And his advisors say, this is wrong. You're going to never get it through. There'll be a filibuster. You'll get nothing through the Congress. You'll go to the election in 11 months as a failed president. You only have a certain amount of coinage, one of them said to him, that you can expend as president. You shouldn't expend it on this. And then he turns to him and he said, well, what the hell is the presidency for? And he does go for civil rights and unimagined by anybody else you know, within a short period of time, he brings the Republican Demo- Republican leader Dirksen to bring 22 Nor- Republicans along with the Northern Democrats to break that filibuster, and the story of how he gets Dirksen is so amazing. You know, he he sits with him and has drinks, and he promises everything under the sun. Speaking of here under the sun, everything under the sun. Um, there could be an ambassadorship. There could be any kind of things. Postmasterships in Peoria. A speech in Springfield. But then he understands something deeper about Dirksen, that he wanted to be remembered too. And he cared about the the reputation of the Senate. That's what I'm saying. In those days, they cared about the institution. They knew it would break the institution apart if they had yet another year-long filibuster. So he says to Dirksen, If you come with me on this bill, Everett, 200 years from now, school children will know only two names, Abraham Lincoln and Everett Dirksen. How can Dirksen resist?
1: But now there's the Dirksen Federal Building in Illinois. There's the Dirksen Federal Building, exactly. You know, it's funny. I I covered um, Mayor Rahm Emanuel in Chicago for years before coming here, and the LBJ section reminded me time and time again of this infamous saying that Rahm Emanuel has, which is you never let a serious crisis go to waste because it gives you the opportunity to do things you wouldn't be able to do otherwise. And while he's gotten nailed for that time and time again because it feels so aggressive, it also reminds me exactly of the calculations and the math that LBJ had to do when Selma happened. He was like, wait on voting rights, it's gonna happen just a couple days. I mean, talk about some of the political math that he used to do. No,
0: I mean, it was really extraordinary. What happened is once the civil rights bill got through, He thought that probably the country had to wait a little bit of time to take up the next big bill, which he knew was really important. He thought voting rights was even more important than civil rights, because then there'd be power in the African-American community. Um, But then the Selma demonstrations take place, and he decides, "Okay, it's now. That's something, again, about a leader. You have to have that sense of timing, of knowing when. So he decides at the last minute to go to a joint session of Congress speech to give a speech in, in favor of voting rights. And this is an incredibly personal story for me, because my husband, Richard Goodwin, who just died this last spring, was, was the main speechwriter for LBJ. And that Sunday night, he was at Arthur Schlesinger's house, and he didn't get a call. So he figured, well, I, I don't know, maybe somebody else is writing the speech. He goes in at a leisurely time at 9 in the morning. The speech is going to be that night. And Goodwin is yelling at Jack Valenti, how's Goodwin doing on the speech? Valenti had assigned it to somebody else, and, and Johnson was crazed. So Dick had only that day to write that speech. If you look at that speech, it's one of the greatest speeches in the 20th century. It starts out, history and fate meet at a certain time in a certain place. So it was in Lexington and Concord. So it was at Appomattox. So it was in Selma, Alabama. And then he talks about It's so great. And then, then he talks about this is not a Negro problem. This is not a white problem. This is an American problem. And then he says, even if we pass this bill, there's so much more left to do. But he said, if we put our minds to it, it says it much better than that, we shall overcome. He takes the anthem of the civil rights movement. That's when change takes place. You've got this outside group. Giving their lives for civil rights, singing we shall overcome and now the President of the United states is, is is making that anthem theirs, and they passed the voting rights bill within months after that speech so it will it's one of my we have the pen one of the pens that Lyndon Johnson used to sign it, and it will always be one of our proudest possessions but that was timing that was knowing when to when to move and one of the moments that when I finally got to the epilogue when they're all dying um, i I was talking to Johnson always, and he was kept saying, if only civil rights, they'll remember me for that. Maybe they will. The last speech he gives, he's um, about five weeks away from dying. He's had yet another heart attack, and he's been really ill for months with an oxygen tank. And, but he wants to go because his civil rights papers are being opened in, in Austin. So he insists on going. The doctors say no. He gets there finally. He comes up the steps. He has to put a nitroglycerin bill, pill in his mouth because he's in such pain. And he stands at the rostrum. And what he says, it's going to be a symposium with all the civil rights leaders. He said, don't just say everything we've gotten done in the past couple of years. Much more important is what we didn't get done. I'm embarrassed about I didn't get more done. And then he talks about everything that will have to be done to make blacks and whites stand on equal ground. And then finally he says, but I know we can do it, and we shall overcome. And then five weeks later, he died. So that, that moment really captured so much for me. I mean, I was so sad when they died. I didn't want to get up to the ed <laughs> I can feel that in there, in there, really, truly. And it is really fascinating
1: to think about legacy. I mean, you talk about how LBJ had struggled with that on the walks that you guys took. And, and, and Roosevelt, I mean, geez, he really, Teddy Roosevelt, it, it seemed like it was agonizing for him not to be in power. How did they view their legacy? And how do you see modern presidents you know, being so conscious of that now, and how do you compare you know, them?
0: It's a really good question, because I think they're much more conscious of it now because of these presidential historians' polls than they were at that time. Um, But FDR is the interesting one. He creates the first presidential library, and he saved everything. He was a collector when he was a kid anyway, maps and stamps. So he just saved everything. But when he opened the library, he said, The most important thing that's going to be in the library are not the memos from my officials. It's the letters from the citizens who wrote to me, and they told me what they were thinking and feeling. There's one letter I remember reading at one point along the way when he first gave his first inauguration. And somebody presumably wrote a letter saying, my roof fell off, my dog ran away, my wife is mad at me, I don't have a job, but now everything's going to be all right because you're there. (laughs) And, And what he did, the most important thing he did, was to establish a bond with the citizens. And little wonder that he wanted to be remembered for that. I mean, he was able to make them trust in his word from that very first inauguration and from the very first bank crisis where he goes on his first fireside chat and he tells them all that it's safer to bring your money back because we've now got an emergency banking bill. And I promise you, it's safer there than in the mattresses. He had closed the banks for an entire week and they were worried that when he opened them, they might take their money out again. Long lines that first Monday when they open it, but they're bringing their money back. They're carrying it back from their mattresses because they trusted in him. And that is so important in a leader. That's where words matter. But just to go to your question about today, I think it's true. Ever since we've had these presidential historians' polls and all the presidents hate them, um, and, and little wonder that they hate them because they feel like they're being judged by these outside guys. So, but um, what happened is a funny story one night. I happened to be at a White House dinner where President Clinton was next to me, and that day a presidential historian's poll had come out. This was 1997, before Monica Lewinsky, but they only ranked him like average. And so he was really mad. He was so grouchy the whole night at the dinner. And so that very day, there had been an announcement that the owner of the old Brooklyn Dodgers, who had moved them, taken them away from us who, growing up in New York, to Los Angeles was going to sell she the She's since converted to the
1: Red Sox. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh,
0: absolutely. We'll talk about that. But Meanwhile, they said maybe they'd come back to Brooklyn now that they were being sold. So I said to President Clinton, I'll make you a corrupt bargain. If you bring them back to Brooklyn, I'll put you up a notch on the next historians fault. <laughs> <call." laughs> He said, I don't know if I have the power to do that. But a funny thing has just happened. It seems funny. Anyway, James Buchanan used to be on the lowest rung of the presidential historians, always, for a long time. A new poll was taken, not recently. I mean, very recently. And um, President Trump was down there. So the story in the paper was that Buchanan family was celebrating.
1: So we've been getting some great questions from you guys. And so one of them, um, which president is Trump most comparable to? And I would add to that, which of your four guys would you send in as a new chief of staff?
0: Oh, wow. That's a great question. Thanks. Um, Wow. Well, I think it is Teddy Roosevelt that he's most comparable to. I mean, Teddy became a celebrity in his time more than other presidents had been. People were just obsessed by his colorful nature, his interesting comments. Um, and, he, and he was able, I think, to establish a relationship where people felt, and, and was more people, however, felt he was on their side. The big difference, however, is that Teddy's square deal was for both sides, for the rich and the poor, for the capitalist and the wage worker. He wanted both sides to win. And I read a, a, a column, not a column, but a, a part of the art of the deal, where President Trump said, that's, that's just crap that both sides win. You just have to win yourself. And that's a really difference in the way you think about it. But more importantly, I think, Teddy established collegial relationships with the press. He loved talking to the press. When he had a, a barber's hour, where he would shave in the mid, middle of the day, he'd let the press come in. And they could ask him all sorts of questions. And he'd be moving around in the chair. I don't know how the barber did it. And, um, and there's a moment when a journalist criticized him. And, and this is where modern presidents aren't so good at this, not just, not just President Trump. It was, it was Teddy as well. But at this moment, a journalist wrote a criticism about his um, memoir of the Spanish-American War and said that he had po- so placed himself in the center of every action that he should have called the book Alone in Cuba. <laughs> and everybody's <laughs> laughing in the country. And he writes a be- letter back and said, I regret to tell you that my wife and my children are absolutely delighted with your review of my book. (laughs) So I now want to meet you. I've long wanted to meet you. But the interesting question, who could be the best chief of staff without a question, it would be Lyndon Johnson. Oh my god, do you think that he would allow people to be leaking items? Um, do you think he'd allow people to be saying bad things about each other in public? I, they would have to answer to Lyndon Johnson in the morning and the night. So that, that would be good to bring that kind of force back, just to give some unity and some some ability for us to look at what the, what the team is doing there. And I mean, the leaks are just, it's really hard to, to govern when that's happening and I don't know why it's happening or what's happening, Um, and they say things about each other that come out into the press. Um, Lincoln was really upset at one point when he heard his cabinet members, who some of them didn't like each other, say things in public, and he sent a memo. He said, it would pain me very much to have these things come out. We have to stay together where we are, and I think that's really true.
1: Somebody else asked about Congress and any suggestions for leadership styles or skills you would offer up for them.
0: I think what they need to do is just to spend somehow more time with each other outside of their partisan tribalness. Um, you know, in the old days, they used to stay in Washington on the weekends because they couldn't travel home as easily. They didn't need to come home and raise money. The poison in the system is the campaign money. We have to do something about it. Um, they spend so much of their time raising money from a very minor base now because of the way congressional lines are drawn. We have to have nonpartisan, con- these things can be done, nonpartisan congressional drawing of lines. And they used to play poker together, they drink together, their wives knew each other, so they knew each other as human beings, not as the other. And somehow we have to figure, I was at a dinner uh, about a month or so ago that the Library of Congress puts on for Republicans and Democrats, and I was speaking at the dinner. It was so nice just for that one night to see these people talking to each other and and there seemed to be no animus and then they go back to their sides the next day. So somehow, we, I mean, if it were Lyndon Johnson, he'd have them all living at the White House and not able to let le- The leave. White House sleepover <laughs> game board. <laughs> they could all be part of the game. <laughs> in fact, when he first became president, he had every single congressman in groups of 30 into the White House, not just the leaders he was talking to, but every congressman. And then Lady Bird would take the, the wives on a tour after dinner of the mansion, and he would have court and brandy with the guys, but they all felt they were part of the White House. They were part of this of the structure, not just the leaders of the Congress. There's things to do. They, they just have to get done. You talk a little bit briefly about this idea of
1: fame for these four guys, and but you also write in the epilogue that the fame that your guys craved and the recognition they sought bears little resemblance to today's cult of celebrity. What did you mean by
0: that? <clears throat> well, it's interesting. There was a book called Fame and the Founding Fathers, which talked about how At some point in the Founding Fathers' lives, they had started out with personal ambition. But at some point, because of what was happening in the country at large, because they were together as colleagues, their ambition stretched to something much larger, to creating something, obviously in this case, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, a republic they're creating that's going to last over time. And they felt that sense of fulfillment that comes when you're doing something larger than for yourself. And I think that that's one of the key leadership traits, not just for presidents, but when an ambition for a person becomes not simply for their own self aggrandizement, but rather for what's happening to the team, what's happening to the community, what's happening to the company, what's happening to the college, whatever you happen to be leading. And that's when you you become the possibility of a good or a great leader. And these people, I think, in the setting, maybe you're in the setting of depression or World War II, or you're in the setting of the Civil War. This is one of your questions earlier. It does make it easier to mobilize people to a common cause when you have a common crisis. But we have to hope we are sort of at a crisis now. That that until we make our political system healthier again, until we make more young people—and it's happening now. This is the awakening that I think should give us hope. More young people running for office. More women. Record-breaking numbers running for office. Um, you know, as long as. We have to just realize that we can't have a democracy without respecting our politicians. And when you look at the polls right now, 11% only approve of Congress. Only in the 30s, approve of the presidency or the Supreme Court. And you can't run a democracy without those institutions being respected. So we have to rebuild the respect for those institutions. We have to rebuild bipartisanship. We have to rebuild both parties feeling more importantly related to their constituents, and to the country, and to their institutions than they are to their party. Um, so we'll anyway, <laughs> I've got to be an optimist. That's, that's my nature.
1: Well, speaking of women, we've spent a lot of time on the guys, but can we please talk about these four fabulous first ladies, and what contribution did each of them have to their partner?
0: Yeah, it's a good question to say what contribution they had to their partner, because it may not necessarily be a contribution to the country, because now we judge that. They all have to have some program they're doing. But in Mary Todd's case, I think you know people look at how sad she was during the White House years. She, was, she had tried to make the White House a, a better place, and she overspent the appropriations, something Jackie Kennedy would be lionized for later, decorating the White House and she was, she was hurt by that because the soldiers were feeling we need blankets, not what she's doing. She was also a Westerner, and the Easterners looked down on her. She had brothers who were in the Confederate Army, and then they lost their son Willie and at 10 years old in 1862, and she went to a depression and, and could hardly deal with their younger son, Tad, so she's always looked at as a failed first lady. But on the other hand, she met Lincoln when, she, when they were young. And he looked up to her enormously. She was well-read. She loved poetry. She loved drama. She liked politics, which many women didn't. And the first time he met her, he met her at a dance at her sister's house. Her sister was married to the governor. And she came from a good, well-off family in Kentucky and was now in Illinois. And he said to her, Mary, I want to dance with you in the very first way. And then after they danced, she said he certainly did. <laughs> I can well imagine. But she believed. She believed in his destiny early on, and that was really important. So who knows? And she, she came from a different class. She, so the last day of his life, it was sad. He went to her, and he said, you know, Mary, we've been sad for so long between Willie's death and the war. We have to try and be happy again. And they talked about where they might go when the presidency was over. He wanted to go to California. She wanted to go to Europe. They both wanted to go to the Holy Land. So I've often thought we've, we've not been fair to her in a certain sense. Um, Teddy Roosevelt's wife, Edith was so important to him for a, a reason that she gave him comfort. She gave him solace. She gave him a family. She had no interest in public life. She just wanted to be the mother of that brood of kids and be his wife. And he could leave his public life and go home at night and horse race with the kids. And that gave him his own security. Now, there's nothing like Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, she, she, she really was able to. If you know that one of the leadership traits is being willing to listen to diverse opinions, um, he had it right within his marriage. As he said, she was a welcome thorn in his side, that she um, was always willing to argue with him, always willing to question his assumptions. And so she um, she was the first First Lady to hold weekly press conferences where there was a simple rule that only female reporters could come to her press conferences. You would have been there. I would have. And an entire generation of female journalists got their start because stuffy publishers decided they needed somebody to go to Eleanor's press conferences. She's the first First Lady who would send so many memos to General Marshall that he had a um, separate general who had to deal with Eleanor Roosevelt's memos about discrimination. (laughs) So she was extraordinary, but Lady Bird was too. I mean, again, she she could calm Lyndon Johnson down when he went into one of his rages. Um, She not only did her beautification, which is really important. What happened, much more important, again, was the role that she played in stabilizing him. I I heard an extraordinary thing. I was at the LBJ Library the other day, and and Lucy Johnson was there. And she told a story that, that was overwhelming to me, that she, she's like a stem winder, like her father. At the end of the evening, I was giving a talk, and then she tells the final story. And she told about how her mother, I knew this, had had a stroke, and she couldn't speak, and she was blind, and she couldn't see. So she would read books to her mother. And among the books she read, out loud, was Team of Rivals. And then afterwards, Lucy said to her mother, we, we should call Doris and tell her what you felt. So they called me, and, and Lucy said to me on the had, "Mother would like to, to tell you how much she liked the book, and I had no idea what she was going to do, and she clapped. And it was just an extraordinary moment to, wow. to hear that. And so she's telling the story and I'm listening there, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah. So,
1: What is your relation like relationship like with any of the modern presidents? I mean, both as a historian and, I mean, I know you did this big piece with President Obama as he was leaving for Vanity Fair, but what is your relationship like,
0: Ben? You them? know, the wonderful thing about being a presidential historian is you really can cross party lines. And so I've gotten to know many of the modern presidents. I got to meet with George Bush senior. In fact, after my son came back from um, Afghanistan, he invited us to lunch up in Kennebunkport and um, and it was, we were on that crazy cigarette boat. I thought that was going to be the end of me at Kennebunkport. <laughs> and, and what a I, way to go. <laughs> and I've been to to see George Bush junior. when he was working on his memoir, he asked me to come down and help him. And um and, and you really, I mean, you, these are such an important presidential clubs. I obviously had met the Clintons, but I guess Obama is the one that I got to know the best mainly because he had been reading team of Rivals when he was running against Hillary. and I just got a a a cell phone message one day. He's there saying, hello, this is Barack Obama. I've just read Team of Rivals and we have to speak. So, um, But he wasn't talking about putting Hillary in his cabinet then. He was way behind her. He just was interested in Lincoln's emotional intelligence. How was he able to forget the people who had hurt him? How was he able to damp down his resentments? So I went to the Senate office building. We talked about it. And then when he finally beat Hillary for the nomination a reporter said to him would you really be willing to put into your inner circle one of your chief rivals even if he or she had a wasn't a a spouse that was an occasional pain in the butt obviously referring to Hillary and Bill Clinton and he remembered Lincoln and he said this is this is a time of peril these are the strongest and most able people in the country i would put her there and then of course he makes her secretary of state and when i saw her i was down for nbc doing the inauguration that first time and I saw her, and she came over to me. She said, you're responsible for my being Secretary of State. <laughs> not me, of course, but Abraham Lincoln. But then he asked me, when he was president, to put together historians to come and give him advice every now and then at dinner about whatever he was working on at the time. So we'd come like Jackson and Washington and Jefferson and, and LBJ. And, and we would not dress up as them, but come as them. But there was a, a great moment when my, my son Joe, when he came back from Afghanistan, was one of the nights of the presidential historian's dinners, So I couldn't go. And I saw him, of course, the next day. And then that summer, we were at a, a, a Hall of Fame, not a Hall of Fame, an opening day game. And President Obama was throwing out the first ball. And my son was there. And he came over to my son. And he said, thank you for your service. He remembered. And thank you for lending your mom to me that night. And then he kept staring at my husband. And they're holding hands. I'm not my husband, my my son. And my son said, he doesn't know how long he's supposed to hold the hand of the free leader of the Western world. And he kept staring. And then finally he said to my son, now I know why your mom likes me so much. My son's ears stick out like President Obama's. (laughs) And so he said, we have the same ears. (laughs) So my son didn't know what to say. He just said, well, I guess the ears have it. At which point he said President Obama went away.
1: What about President Trump? Would you consider studying him, writing about him, or has he called you at all, or like that? I,
0: I, I would. I would absolutely go to talk to him if he asked me to. There's not a question I would. Um, I, I think I choose the people that I write about if I'm going to live with them every morning and every night. But more importantly than that, I don't mean to be sarcastic about it. I. I wouldn't even write about President Obama. I need letters and diaries. I mean, what I feel most comfortable with is the olden days when people would write letters that that tell what they're feeling that day. They describe everything that happened. They write it in their diaries. It would be a journalist task now to do something about a president person, interviewing people, and I think I could do that. I'd probably talk too much, <laughs> so I, I should just be listening to the people. But I, I feel much more comfortable having that written material. I don't know what'll happen three hundred years from now. We'll know so much more about us. They'll see us walking and talking and they'll maybe read emails if they get changed over time, if they get saved. The emails are more staccato than letters were. And I don't know whether they'll get into the emotional parts of us the way we can from people back in previous times.
1: I do wonder about, you know, 100, say, years from now, the Doris Kearns Goodwin of that day. What do you think that that person will look back on this moment and
0: say about it? I think it depends so much on how long this moment lasts. Um, and, you know, I do mean that seriously. I mean, if if it turns out that 2020 goes to, a, you know, a politician or, or it could be a businessman who had really had experience leading and had hundreds of thousands of people working under him and global experience or hopefully a woman that might be coming in in 2020. Um, In fact, just an embarrassing aside, I was on Stephen Colbert the night that um, Hillary gave her acceptance speech when we were all certain she was going to become the first female president. So Colbert had asked me to be on because he wanted to tell his granddaughter that he was on with me talking about the first female president. So I get on and make this idiotic prediction. I said, well, okay, if we now have our first female president, then maybe the next 45 presidents leading up to her will be females, and there'll be a little boy 200 years from now saying to his mother, Mama, can I ever be president? (laughs) Well, so far, it hasn't happened. (laughs) But I think it'll depend if this was. there was There was a reason I think this happened. I do think it had much to do with the echoes of today in the 20th century turn, in that globalization and the tech revolution had made a lot of people feel that they were not being listened to in the country, that they were losing the way of life that had mattered to them, Lots of people in the rural areas felt that the cities were removed from them. They felt somehow as if immigrants coming in from abroad were hurting what they were doing. Inventions were changing, and the pace of life the same way they were at the 20th century. You had a lot of anxiety at the turn of the 20th century and a lot of populism at the 20th century um, with all the automobile and the and the telegraph and the telephone. Now we have all of the changes with computers and social media. and And President Trump understood that, and he was able to speak to those people um, in language that they felt he was on their side. And the question will be, will they still feel that what the administration has done has helped them by the time 2020 comes? If 2020 means that an, an, another person, whether Republican or Democrat, who's who's got a more traditional leadership background gets into office and that becomes respected, that kind of leadership experience, then it may be just seen as that moment in time. if it. If it's not, it's going to be something's happening that we have to really figure out, as I said earlier, why it is that we are not just politically split apart, but culturally split apart. And the social media, and we watch different things on television, we shop in different places. This is, this is a worrisome thing that we're going to have to figure out the bridges that can, can unite us again.
1: Well, I have two final questions for you. One comes from me, and one comes from someone in the audience. The one from me is, was there anything you learned about leadership in doing the research for this book that you've put into your own daily life?
0: You know, I think the thing that made so much difference in in working with um, Abraham Lincoln was was that thing that I said before that he felt normal emotions of jealousy or anger or envy, but he said if you allow those emotions to fester, it will poison a part of you. So he he was able to do that. There's this amazing moment when he had been in he he makes his second war secretary this man Edwin Stanton. And the fact he did it is almost miraculous, because the two of them had been in a lawsuit together in the 1850s. Stanton was nationally known, Lincoln known only in Illinois. Stanton had a big patent case in Illinois, so they thought they needed someone of counsel, so they put Lincoln into the case. He was so excited he'd be working with this brilliant Stanton, and he works on his case all summer long. At the last minute, the case gets transferred back to Cincinnati. They don't need him anymore, but they forgot to tell him. So he kept working. He goes to Cincinnati all on his own. He goes up to Stanton his partner on the street corner. He said, let's go together in the courthouse as as a gang. Stanton took one look at Lincoln and said it at the time to his partner. He's got a big stain on his shirt. His hair's disheveled. His sleeves are too short for his long legs and arms. He said, we have to lose this long-armed ape. He will hurt our case. He was so humiliated. He never even wanted to go back to Cincinnati again. But when he needs a second Secretary of War, everybody says, this is the man for the job. He's a bully. He's intense. He's tough. But he will be your guy. And he said, that's the important thing. And he gives him that most powerful post. And Stanton ends up loving him more than anyone outside his family. So I guess I kept thinking of all those moments when you want to do something to retaliate if you've been hurt or you want, you feel jealousy of somebody, which we all normally do. And Lincoln would say, we don't have time for that. I think that's what I learned most importantly from him.
1: Well, you'll love this last one. It is, will the Red Sox win the World Series in 2018?
0: <laughs> it really, I didn't okay. make it up. I love it. I love it. Well, you know what? When you get older like me, um, I am so happy with the season that they have had. Um, I We can wait. Just think about it. If something happens, you know, and we've all got that Red Sox mentality, I mean, of course I'd been a Brooklyn Dodger fan, but when then Walter O'Malley took them away, I came to Harvard, I went to Fenway Park, and that was the beginning of the end. I've loved it, and we've had season tickets for 35 years. And you know, I think, as I've told you before, I sometimes can sit at the park with my kids and imagine myself a young girl once more sitting with my father, who died when I was young, um, looking at the players of my youth, Jackie Robinson and Gil Hodges and Pee Wee Reese. And I, my, my kids have learned about the stories of my father and his love for baseball through all the stories I tell, which is what I think is so grateful about baseball. It does connect generations. It connects community. It makes us all feel part of something to be together. So the Red Sox have given us such great century, when you think about it. We've had those two amazing World Series. Nothing will equal 2004 when we finally, finally, finally won. And, um, I'll never forget, we were, we were at the playoff game before the, those one of those terrible playoff games when we lost three of them to the Yankees until we finally won. And there was an old guy that stood up afterward. And we're all so dejected. And he started yelling out year after year after year. And we just laughed because we were part of it together. Um, but anyway, so it's been such a wonderful summer. I don't even like to read the newspaper when they've lost because I can't see the sporting section when they've lost. I don't want to read the box scores like my father had taught me to teach. But this summer, I could read the newspaper so many times. <laughs> <laughs> and so a historic would, number of times. An historic, no- an historic number of times. So I think we should just relish. They've been a terrific team. They've done great. Um, There's enormous pressure on them now given this enormous record that they've had and we just have to wish them well And be happy for whatever happened because they've given us a fabulous summer.
1: Well, thank you Doris. Thank you so much You're welcome. Thank you We just have a couple people to thank. Uh, Patricia Lynch is the executive producer of the Music Hall. The Music Hall producer is Margaret Talcott. Betsy Gardella is the president of New Hampshire Public Radio. Ben Henry and Erica Janik were amazing producers, as was Sarah Plord, our NHPR digital producer. The Music Hall production manager is John Morris. The Music Hall live sound and recording engineer is Ian Martin. And let's give it up for Bob Lord and Dreadnought. Yeah. <laughs> well done. Thank you all for ending this truly historic week here with Doris and I. Uh, We had a blast, I hope you did too.
0: Thank you very much.